Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now Reyes. Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you too. How are you? I'm tired. I'm tired. <laughs> what? Any specific reason? Yeah. Magpies. Go on. We have a nest of magpies somewhere at the back of the house or in the neighbour's garden, and the the young magpies have, have fledged... And they're annoying little bastards. And they come into the back garden and Lana, the young German shepherd, does not care for magpies one bit. She doesn't like to see, see. them. She doesn't like to hear them. She doesn't like to, to sense that they're around. And on the back of the house is sort of an extension and a kind of a roof where when the birds go on it, it's all, you can hear it. It's really scraggledy, like nails on a blackboard kind of thing. Not quite, but, you know. But uh, they have a tendency to jump about on this roof at somewhere between 5 and 5.30 every morning. And, of course, Lana goes berserk and wakes up and goes, you know, bombing out the back garden. She needs to get out to make sure that the magpies fuck off. And, um, yeah, so I kind of get woken up at that time, and I've been awake since then, and I'm just a bit tired. So fuck magpies. Fuck magpies is what I'm saying. Do you act about magpies? Do I what? Want to know a fact about magpies. Okay. Magpies can recognise their own reflection. (laughs) It's true. Uh, Okay. How, How do they know that? They did this experiment where they, like, wrote, put, like, a bit of paint on a magpie on its neck in a way that it couldn't see it or cause it irritation. And then when they put the magpies in front of a mirror, they started, like, scratching at their neck trying to get the mark off. So they had obviously realised the bird they saw in the mirror was, in fact, themselves. OK, hang Unusual, on. Unusual, apparently. Hang on, a f- hang on a fucking second here. How does a magpie yeah. know what it looks like in the first place? Like, there are no... They don't fucking have mirrors hanging out of trees so they can just check their plumage in the morning before they go onto my roof to annoy my dog. What's going on? Well, they, they've does- seen another magpie, though, haven't they? So they've got an idea. They've got an idea of, like, I look vaguely like that. <laughs> but when, when they're in front of a mirror... Apparently, they're quite special because they can go, that's not just any magpie, that's me. Well, I don't know what to say to this. I was impressed by it. Yeah, well, I guess it is kind of impressive. Birds are intelligent creatures, even though I I don't really care for them because they're far too flappy for me. 
But yeah. I'm not sure I buy this information. That sounds... I'm not disputing the fact that, you know, you've obviously read this and believe it to be true, but I... I, I I'm, I'm finding it difficult to to get on board with it. So you're not disputing that I'm basically quite a credulous individual. That's basically what, you, what you're saying. <laughs> okay, fair. I trust you. I trust you know that you're giving me this information in good faith. I'm just not necessarily sure that I believe it. Well, all I would say is if you've got magpies in your garden, put a few mirrors out for them. And, you know, they'll, they'll, at least they'll make an effort then. Exactly. they'll know. All I've got to do is paint a few of them and they'll be too busy scratching at their own necks to get the paint off to bother, to bother the dog in the morning. Thank you, James. You've provided a solution. There we go. There we go. Well, I'm sorry about your, your lack of sleep. Well, uh, listen, let's at least console ourselves that it, you've probably had more sleep than you might have done had the result at the weekend gone in the other direction. Oh, for sure, for sure. I, I guess I've had more sleep than Harry Kane or Eric Dyer or Deli Alley or any of those mm. guys who must have been just lying awake. Lucas Mora, he looked absolutely haunted by the experience. Didn't he? Wasn't it wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> sort of Sammy Kufour levels of despair, really, at full time from him. Yeah, that was, I mean... Amazing. <laughs> did you watch the game? I did. I did. Did you find it a stressful experience? I sort of did. I mean, clearly the very early goals settled things down a bit, so that mm. that uh, that made it a little less stressful. But man, when the second goal went in, because you know it, it was it was about to be a Liverpool win, but you know just one nil, anything could happen. When the second goal went in, and I knew the game was done, I you know I, I watched it with my brother, of course, who is the monk smasher. He's a Liverpool fan, and I felt like I had to watch it. There was part of me that was kind of okay with the idea of just hiding away or going to the cinema or doing something else on Saturday night. So. I wouldn't see the result. I wouldn't see the game. wouldn't have to experience it. And I remember I did that with the Ajax game, with the second leg of the right. Ajax game. I, I, I said, no, I'm not going to watch it. And I turned on Twitter and whatever it was, Ajax were 2-0 up or whatever. And I thought, this is great, fantastic. Ignored Twitter, turned it back on when I thought the game was um, over. And it was at the point where it was 2-2 or whatever the hell way the game played out. But it was a, it was a draw, but Ajax were still going through on away goals or whatever. Um, sure. And I thought, oh, fuck, I'll just turn Twitter off again. And then when I turned Twitter on again, they just scored. So I, I felt in some way responsible, despite the fact it was clearly Ajax being bottling pricks. I felt a little bit responsible for that result. So in order to make up for it and in order for the universe to right itself and for the benefit of all of Arsenal mankind, I decided that I had to watch the game and put mm. myself through it in order that the right result would happen. And I did, and it did, and I fucking loved it. I loved Congratulations. it. Congratulations. You met your fate head on. You know, you didn't cower. You just stood there and were like, I'll, I'll live with the consequences of this. Mm. And you absolutely won. I mean, it, yeah. I, I it was a victory, the, a victory for me game. as much as Liverpool Football Club. I think it's fair I to say. I think so. I think Liverpool were playing for you. Didn't they all, at the end, lift up their shirts and they all had T-shirts with your face printed on them <laughs> and stuff like that? <laughs> you, you, you were what drove them to Yeah, victory. exactly. You didn't get to see it because you were at a, I know you said you were going to be at a wedding. 
Well, officially, I didn't get to see it. But <laughs> what actually happened is that <laughs> I was in Devon for this wedding and over the course of the weekend, like in the build-up to the, the party on Saturday night, everyone was like, obviously, what are we going to do about the game? And um, a sort of splinter group managed to find like a back room at the wedding where a laptop was set up and uh, people would sort of take it in shifts to watch periods of the game while <laughs> someone else essentially was on patrol in case the bride <laughs> found out. And none of these people were Spurs fans or Liverpool fans, just a bunch of committed neutrals who really wanted to see the game. So I think, you know, due, due to the shift pattern, I saw sort of the middle 20 minutes of the second of the first half and then the last 20 minutes of the second half so right. i i was watching this crucial second goal live what a Divo moment Divo. what a moment what a guy what a hero what a legend seriously yeah. like in fairness when you consider where he was i mean he was like what their their yaya sonogo to an extent wasn't he um, mm. And then you look at what he did in the game against Barcelona and the game then in the final, he scores the goal to seal the final. Um, oh, man. And you know what, what was really great about it was the fact that Tottenham probably on the night were the better team, more possession. They, they didn't really create an awful lot. I think, that you know, when you when you start a, a striker who's who's really not fit, that was a bad decision, wasn't it, starting Kane? Yeah, it was. And actually speaking to... I think it was, I was chatting to a Spurs fan in the build-up to the game and they were saying maybe, you know, our best bet isn't to start Kane. We could, mm. you know, go with Son and Lucas, who obviously scored a hat-trick in the semi-final, bring Kane on later. Not only did they start him, they kept him on for the 90 minutes, which I suppose <laughs> you can understand when you're chasing a goal, but yeah. he was well, well off the post, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, it was brilliant. It was really good. <laughs> you know, and I think that's what kind of makes it a little bit sweeter for me is the fact that they, they, they can have some regrets about the way that they played, uh, you know, and, and having been probably the better team. I mean, this this gap between the the end of the season and the, the final really didn't help in terms of the, the footballing no. spectacle. Um, frankly, though, I, I would have watched a game 50 times worse and loved it just as much as long as Liverpool won it, you know? So it was really, really all about the result. What did you make of the um, the penalty? Did you see the incident for the penalty? I haven't seen the penalty. I heard that it was. Uh, I heard that it was potentially harsh. What, what do you think? Hundred percent penalty, like five hundred percent a penalty, just because. Uh, but are you just saying that because of Spurs? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. My brother was there, going, "Ooh, that's a that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Do you think that's harsh?" I was going, "No, of course it's not harsh. Should have sent him off." Uh, I was like, "What are you? Why are you being so magnanimous? hundred percent. It's a penalty in a Champions League final. Stop it. Just enjoy it." Just enjoy the fact you've got a penalty and stop worrying and questioning it. That was my overriding feeling. Exactly. I mean, the delicious thing is that not only do Spurs now know the pain that we suffered by losing a Champions League final, they also have uh, the sort of added salt in the wound of uh, a questionable refereeing decision. So there is at least some <laughs> justice there and some semblance of balance. And look, thank goodness, after the events of Wednesday night, it just became an intolerable thought. And luckily, it's not a thought. We have to have again, hopefully, for some time. Yeah, I mean, regardless of what happened on Wednesday night, it was still right. an unconscionable right. potential outcome, um, whether we'd won or, or uh, you know, I don't think... For me, anyway, I, I would have absolutely loved winning the, uh, the Europa League. We didn't, of course, but it would not have made 
it any more acceptable for Tottenham to win the Champions League. It still would have sickened me to my very core. To the very fibre of my being, I would have been disgusted with sport and football and life and Manchester City. I would have hated them even more than I already do. Ajax, I would have been, you know, uh, even less favourably disposed towards them. Jurgen Klopp, Jurgen oh. Klopp, and he would have been history's greatest monster had he not won that final. Um, so thankfully, thankfully he did. And I have to say, um, all things considered, just leaving aside the uh, the the Tottenham element of it, I was kind of happy for for Liverpool um, and Jurgen Klopp because they've had an amazing season, really, in terms of how they played. And you know, we we talk about the rebuild job that we need to do, and um, we worry about money, and we worry about you know how it's possible to to buy and sell players effectively and build a team that might be competitive in the Premier League and in the Champions League. And to a certain extent, Liverpool have done that. They've sort of shown us that it is possible, you know, mm. to to create a team if you get a good coach and if you if you're um, you know smart in the transfer market. Where is this tweet I had here um, from? Gunnar Punner, actually, who just made the point that the players that won uh, the the Champions League for Liverpool were signed from Roma, uh, an academy player, Schalke, Southampton, Hull, Sunderland, Newcastle, Monaco, Roma, Hoffenheim, and Southampton. And they won the Champions League with those players. Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness, a couple of them were very, very expensive signings. Uh, when you think of Alisson and when you think of Van Dijk, uh, they were pretty expensive signings. But also signings made uh, from the money that they got by selling that absolute waster to Barcelona and the other really good player to Barcelona, you know. So they have been very intelligent and used the market well to sell players and also buy players. And if there's a blueprint for us and if there's like a glimmer of hope that in this this um oil-rich, money-obsessed football world that we exist in right now, that that it can be done in, I guess, um, something approaching a, a relatively normal business-like way, then they've shown us how to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. And not in a, a vast expanse of time either. You know, Klopp, Klopp's only been there, what is it, four or five years, something like that? Mm. Um, if that, in fact. And also, I, I think there's something to be taken from how they managed to turn things around. I mean, obviously, they got to the final last year. Some of their vulnerabilities were exposed in that final, uh, particularly in the goalkeeping position and, you know, the sort of emphasis with which they have corrected those issues and solved some of their defensive problems is quite impressive. um, And the speed at which they've managed to do that. Now, granted, spending an awful lot of money has played its part, but I think it's also about identifying the right personnel. They've obviously been really skillful at that when you look at their use mm. of the market. But it feels kind of fair, doesn't it? You know, having run City so close and missed out on the Premier League, it feels almost right that they should finish with some piece of major silverware this season. It, it feels like a sort of appropriate balance given those two teams 
performances across the season. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, of course, it denies Tottenham a trophy, um, which they... Can... And that, again, feels fair yeah, to me. absolutely. Absolutely. There's no justification in the world for Tottenham winning the Champions League. <laughs> it, it would kind of make a mockery of it, wouldn't it, when your champions of Europe haven't been champions of England for over 50 years, whatever it is. And what is it, 1961? So 2001? Yeah, 50 years, is it? What year is it? What year is it, James? I'm so old. It's 2019. <laughs> I'm so old. I can't remember I what year I, it I is. I can't work it out now because it goes across the millennia. It gets a bit trickier to do the sums, doesn't it? Yeah. A long time. Coming up to 60 years. Ooh, so hell you know, of a long time. Yeah, exactly. So um, they can stick their no trophy right up their bum. Um, the the other thing that I thought was quite interesting, I wrote about it on the blog today, were with the amount of people who were like, well, what are you, give, what are you giving Tottenham a hard time for? You know, we lost our final and we fucked up our season. You know, they had a much better season than us, blah, 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 blah. It's like, what, what's wrong with people like that? Can you understand that mindset? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I sort of think it's, it's with their arrival, aren't they? It's sort of fair game. Uh, you know, it, it didn't stop them taking pot shots at us for 20 years when they weren't doing as well as us. And I think it will always be that way. Whatever almost the relative positions of the teams are, mm-hmm. There'll always be that element of Schadenfreude, for sure. I mean, you have to take pleasure in the failings and miseries of other players and other teams because that's just the way that football works. That's mm. how it goes. You know, we all when a guy, you know, it's 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 sort of fundamental to the game and to our to our enjoyment of it. Certainly, in my opinion, like you know, uh, there was a moment in the in the final early on when I can't remember who it was. Probably Kane, but maybe Ericsson or somebody had a chance to shoot a goal and he blasted it over the bar. And as one, all the Liverpool fans in the bar I was watching in, and myself included, went way as you do when a guy shoots the ball over the bar. This is just an extension of that. Taking yeah. the piss out of Tottenham is just, uh, just that's how it goes. You know, and, and you don't have to see these things in isolation. You can absolutely uh, believe and think and understand that we're not in the best shape uh, that we've been in for quite some time. The The final against Chelsea was a fucking disaster. Um, I think now that the, now that the, the, the looming terror of Tottenham winning the uh, Champions League is out of the way, I think that will maybe come back into focus a little bit, just how bad the Europa League final was, because we, we sort of had this, oh, God, that really was terrible, but now please just make make sure Liverpool win Brace the Champions yourselves. League. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now we can step back from it and say, that's absolutely shite to lose 4-1 <laughs> in a final against Chelsea. And the way that we blew the top four, that was absolutely shite. And we've got so many things going on in terms of, you know, what we need to do, how we need to do them, questions about the coach, questions about the owner, you know, what's our trajectory? How are we going to get ourselves back on track? All of those things are absolutely right. They're absolutely relevant uh, to our Arsenal experience. But to my mind, completely separate from Tottenham losing in the Champions League final, because that's just something we should all enjoy and celebrate and point fingers at and laugh like Nelson from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it may, it may, I thought you were going to say, you know, now that the horror of Tottenham potentially winning the Champions League is out of the way, 
maybe we'll reflect more kindly on Eurobelieve. It's quite the opposite. It's like, no, maybe we'll be like, oh, actually, yeah, that was really bad. That was really bad. Uh, I think that's probably true. It's almost like now the... Because we had that greater fear kind of hanging over us, we sort of almost couldn't confront the awful reality of what we'd already faced. But now we've got plenty of time to do that and dissect it. But at least we're all still here to do that. Had Spurs triumphed, you know, who knows if this podcast would even still be going, Andrew? That's a very good point. Uh, The world could possibly have ended. That is surely one of the signs of the apocalypse, Spurs winning the Champions League. Yeah, God. But they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. They, they didn't. Mickey. Um, <laughs> uh, look, you got to throw in an odd, uh, sure. an odd Mickey. So look, that that was great. That was great. That sort of ended the season on just a little bit of a, a little bit of a high because you know we, we're all Arsenal fans. Um, well, most of the people listening to this are are Arsenal fans. I know we do have some uh, listeners who are not spies, spies, yeah. spies. But that's fine, uh, and I'm sure you know um, many of them. Will have uh, you know? The, the, it's something any football fan can identify with. You know, um, I'm sure um, Manchester United fans were all rooting for Tottenham because they don't want Liverpool to win. Same as Manchester City fans uh, were probably rooting for for Tottenham as well to mm-hmm. make sure that Liverpool didn't. Win. Everton fans, of course. You know, so it works. It's something everybody can identify with. Um, and we're the happy ones, and I think that's something that we should be thankful for. Lovely to think as well that the result also will have made Manchester United fans a bit unhappy. So thanks for bringing that up. That's a lovely little... See? That's a cherry on the cake, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. There's just layers and layers and layers of how good this is. And when you think then about, you know, the Tottenham players and how sad they must be. Mm. <laughs> oh, it really does warm my heart. It does. <laughs> Yeah, that was a, 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 a relief. Let's put it like that. It was a real, real relief. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, Spurs reached the Champions League final. It was so kind of miraculous they got there, given the circumstances. I feel relatively assured that that's not something we're going to have to face with particular regularity. Yeah, so. I mean, that, that's another part of it, isn't it? it? This was their chance. Yeah. This was their moment to take <laughs> destiny into their own hands. And they spurs it right the fuck up. <laughs> uh, Despite Harry Kane's best attempts to fall over near the goal. Oh, he's just intolerable, isn't he? He really is. You know, I know, I, I get it. You know, you're a goal down and he was desperate and all that kind of stuff. But he does that all the time and uh, quite often gets penalties, um, which is really irritating. So, yeah, it's good. It's good on every conceivable level. It is good. Um, what else is there to talk about? Well, of course, it's a bittersweet weekend because um, the suite that we have from Barcelona, or from Barcelona, do you hear me, from uh, Liverpool winning the uh, the Champions League um, was very much offset earlier in the day by the very sad news about uh, Jose Antonio Reyes. It's a real mm. shock, wasn't it? I mean, it's uh, it's something... I don't know. I find something a bit weird and surreal about the whole thing. Like when a former footballer dies, um, they tend to be, they tend to be older, um, and people of that era, I guess, will, will connect with those departures um, more than perhaps we would. Whereas this was a player of of our era. You know, he was somebody who was a, a big part of the Invincibles and somebody who was part of, you know, the. the the last big, big success that we had at this football club. So really, really sad. Yeah, really sad. And I mean, 
he's a player who, for me in particular, has always held a, sort of a certain mystique because I don't think I've ever been more excited about a transfer than I was about when we signed Jose Antonio Reyes. And I think it's because Arsene Wenger had a reputation at this point for being an immaculate identifier of talent. You know, if he said somebody was good, they almost certainly were extremely good. Yeah, And, and he had such a reputation for bringing in bargains that when they really pushed the boat out and broke our transfer record to sign Reyes, you just thought, well, this guy's going to be the best player in the world. And, and I, that's not really an exaggeration. I thought we had, were going to have something truly, truly, truly special on our hands. Mm. And we definitely saw flashes of that ability during his his time here. Um, you know, it didn't quite pan out as planned, but really sad, really sad news, a real shock, you know, incredibly young, 35. And yeah, that definitely did cast a, mm. a bit of a, a downer on the day. It, it was an amazing signing when you think back to it. Um, I remember there was sort of whispers going around a couple of days before it happened. And then, you know, there was a, there might've been a newspaper article with, or a picture of David Dean on his way to, to Sevilla um, yeah. to do the transfer. Do you remember there was a, a what was the guy? He was the he was the chairman of Sevilla. He was always Del good Nido? for Del Nido. A, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we had made a, an initial bid apparently, and he said something along the lines of that wouldn't even buy you his boots, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, when you when you think back. You know, this was a team that had just done the double the the, the season before, um, just missed out on the title in 2003 because of, uh, you know, what happened towards the end of the season at Bolton and, and what have you, but still won the FA Cup. And it was a team with Bergkamp, Henri, Perez, Jumberg, mm-hmm. uh, Canu. Will toward uh, a young and upcoming Jeremy Aliadier, who Wenger was really fond of, um, and we didn't know at that point that the injuries were going to have such a uh, an impact on his career. We also had the stadium project looming. Um, money was about to get really, really tight because of that, mm. and we went out and broke our transfer record on Reyes. In January, at a time when nobody really buys players, and it was it was amazing. It was so exciting, and uh, I think that played into the the hopes and the the uh, the belief that we had that this guy was going to be something really special. Because if you're if you're going out and buying him in those circumstances to put him into a team with those players, which means that you're going to have to leave you know one or two of them out. You know, I know maybe Canu and Wiltord were heading towards, you know, the end of their, their Arsenal careers anyway, but it just really spoke to a desire um, from the football club to to build a team and build an attacking, exciting team full of flair players. Um, and yeah, look, it didn't work out as well as we, we might have liked, but he did give us some really special moments. Yeah, and in fact, I remember when the club sort of announced the plans for how the Emirates Stadium would look visually. They did a sort of mock-up of the team running out onto the pitch. And I remember that Reyes was one of the key figures in that particular mock-up. It was like Henri, Cole, Reyes. Mm. Funnily enough, it was a bunch of people who sort of never really played in the stadium. Um, Yeah. But yeah, he was absolutely integral to our future plans. 
at that point and I think by many people was seen as sort of the successor to Dennis Burkham, even though his football was mainly played on the wing for us. I think there was this idea that he and Omri mm. would become the de facto strike partnership. Didn't quite happen for a, a number of reasons, but it's funny, you know, looking back at his career, I think of him as someone who sort of underachieved given that enormous potential he had and the expectations. But in terms of what he won, it's it's quite a list, you know, La Liga with Real Madrid, the Premier League with Arsenal, the FA Cup, five Europa League titles, uh, you know, mm. UEFA Super Cup in there too, second Segunda Division with Sevilla, mm. plenty of trophies, plenty of medals in there. And, you know, I think he was absolutely beloved in Seville, particularly after yeah. the two spells there. Yeah, he really was. Uh, and yeah, it is, you know, he, he, he won a lot. And actually you think, I mean, there was something sort of surreal about the way that he left the club, of course. There was that um, radio interview, you remember, where he was tricked um, and there was the stuff that went on with Thierry Henry and Luis Aragones. And, you know, he, he never really properly settled, did he, in England? Um, and I think at the time, you know, a lot of us would have thought, uh, well, you know, what's his problem? What's the problem here? You know, he's getting well paid. He's at one of the biggest clubs in Europe. What's what's his issue? And sometimes I think we really do forget that players are people, they're human beings. And, you know, despite the fact things could be very comfortable for you, despite the fact you've got enough money to, you know, to live where you want and, you know, buy all the nice things. If you're homesick or if you just don't feel like you've settled in a in a country, it can be very difficult to live there. You know, and if you come from Sevilla with plenty of sunshine and uh, nice warm days and all of a sudden you're transported to, you know, a, a part of the world where winters can be long and cold and dreary and difficult, you know, it, it can be a challenging thing. And I think that's that's kind of what happened. I'm not sure there was as much understanding for that um, maybe as there should have been, but then people were, I think people were just upset because we knew he had a talented player who, who didn't quite, didn't quite make it, you know. Um, mm. And then, of course, didn't we? Didn't we swap? No, he went on loan to. Did we do a swap? To Madrid. Yeah, swap Baptista. loan deal for Baptista. Is that how that happened? If I remember right. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you saw that transfer rumor in this day and age, you'd be like, swap deals never happen. Let alone swap loan deals. But that is precisely what happened, and neither player ended up. Uh, staying permanently with those clubs because he 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 was moved permanently to Atletico, wasn't he? I yeah, he went to Atletico Madrid. Yeah, the next at the end of that season. Yeah, um, but he did score, didn't he? Didn't he score the winning goal for Real Madrid uh, to win them to La win the Liga? League. Yeah, a very good goal as well. I think he came off the bench to do that, and then he came back to Arsenal briefly in pre-season, and, and there was some talk. I think I was something. It was like you know we'd like him to be part of the squad, and then Atletico came in and he jumped at the chance to go back to Spain mm. uh, and that was that really but yeah I, I mean a, a, an, in, an interesting career and one certainly that I think made an impact in some big matches I mean there are definitely iconic Reyes moments aren't they that sort of you know mm. will well I mean the first goal the one that he scored against Chelsea was just yeah. a, you know an incredible goal one of those that's so pleasing on the eye aesthetically isn't it a ball that continues to rise as it hits the net it's on the up uh, yeah. you know and he just really really smashed that one and of course the, the goal in that 5-3 game against Borough which is 
unquestionably one of the great Highbury games. Mm-hmm. Um, an amazing uh, comeback from 3-1 down to win 5-3. But just that, that there was a, a sort of excitement about the team at that point, wasn't there? Because even though we were 3-1 down, you looked around and you thought, hey, you know, that's not that's not a big enough lead for you, Middlesbrough, because we've got the players who can who can turn that around. Um, and it really spoke that's, to the team, didn't it? Yeah, and it's a sensational goal as well. Lovely little turn at real speed and a brilliant finish off the right foot. And yeah, that, that's one of the iconic invincible moments. And I think arguably, you know, Reyes was actually named the the Premier League's Player of the Month in the first month of that season, that August, and he was flying. Um, but we all remember, of course, what happened in the the 50th game, you know, the mm. the United match and, and the treatment he received there. And, you know, I think arguably that affected his form in a way that he never quite recovered from in English football. Um, yeah, I think so. And, I, you know, to this day, I don't really like the idea that kicking him off the park was a kind of badge of honour for the Neville brothers. Um, you know, I, I understand football is a physical game and it should be a physical game. But when it's targeted violence against one individual the way that was, you know, that's that's just not right. And if it did have a really detrimental effect on his career, you could ask questions about, you know, his um, how robust he might be, you know, physically or mentally. But, you know, sometimes um, when violence is inflicted upon you, it can be traumatic. Um, and I think probably now I have a, a more um, understanding outlook on on his decision to move away from English football because of, well, everything that was going on. You know, the home life, the, the, the difficulties with Thierry Henry, who was, you know, the star player who, um, you know, let's be brutally honest about it, threw his weight around and not just with Reyes. Um, he, he was known for throwing his weight around and, and you know, um, in spite of all the goals, that was a problem. And then the homesickness and then, you know, being booted around. You know, you can understand now uh, a bit more as as to why he felt his career might be better served back in Spain. Yeah, you can, you can. But, you know, he, as I say, he, he just leave us with some, uh, some amazing memories sort of sprinkled mm. across his, his brief time in in North London and yeah I just the moment that I remember seeing Reyes uh, at London Colney that photograph of him in front of the Arsenal sign holding up a shirt with Arsene Wenger and uh, it really felt like the sky was the limit at that point and Mm. it was such an exciting time for the club uh, that I can't help but reflect uh, very fondly on that yeah I I found Sesk's tribute quite touching as well on, Mm. on Instagram talking about you know, he was his first uh, big friend and the two Spanish guys at Arsenal. And yeah, look, it's it's a very sad, um, a very sad occasion. And all we can do is send uh, thoughts to family and friends and uh, remember the good things that he did for us. And some of those good things were very good indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Right. What will we do? Because I think, um, you know, there's not not a great deal going on from an Arsenal point of view, but there are a lot of questions. So will we take a break and do some questions? Yes, let's do that, shall we? Let's do that. Okay, we'll be back with more right after this. (laughs) 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. I remembered today. And also on the Arsblog Patreon member Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Just as we were talking towards the end there, James, um, about Europa League final, I thought I'd give Sari out just a quick search on Twitter. And I like this. Is it still out there? It's still out there, but this one is good. If Sarri goes to Juve, I blame Chelsea fans. All the bullshit you fans gave this man and Jorginho for that matter, and you assholes finish third in the Premier League and win a European trophy. You want Sarri out now? You Chelsea fans, you deserve Lampard and a UCL group stage exit. To which somebody replied, Sarri threw on the ground, then kicked our logo. Is that the guy you want to coach us? Absolute unprofessionalism. Sarry out. Wow. He threw on the ground. He threw on the ground. And kicked our what? Our logo. He kicked our logo. He kicked our logo. Our precious, precious logo. He kicked it with his foot. His foot. His Italian smoking foot. Something beautifully corporate about calling it the logo rather Mm. than the, the crest or the badge. The badge, yeah. Fascinating story, Sarri, isn't it? You know, they've hounded him out all season and he's ended up with trophy and Champions League qualification. Um, If he goes to Juve, I think he's sort of really had the last laugh in that situation. He pretty much does, yeah. Absolutely. So that they're sort of guaranteed to win the title in Italy the way it seems to go. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that. I enjoyed it. No problem been brave enough to look up the Emery out hashtag but I'm sure there is some entertaining reading of its own under that yes I'll uh, really leave that for <laughs> for people to do on their own time yes should we have a question yeah let's this one is from uh, Khalil Kierans who's Lord K oh Lord Khalil on uh, Twitter that makes sense and Khalil says goodly morning how much poo are we putting on the Mounier rumours seems odd to spend so much on a right back when we have Bellerin or is it a sign Bellerin could be sold that would be a badly morning type of day that would be a terribly morning not just a badly morning I mean uh, you know when you look through the squad and you think about the players that we definitely definitely should be keeping mm-hmm. Hector Bellerin is very close to the top of the list I mean I don't really believe there's a great deal in this Mounier story I mean there can't be can there how can we 
possibly be thinking that with a limited budget we're going to spend what what was it, the figure it was about 25 million pounds i think 30 million euros 30 million euros about. exactly 30 million euros on a gigantic right back a big giganto right he back. He is a very tall right back. He is, isn't he? He's like a sort of... three, I think. Yeah, uh, an Ivanovic kind of guy. And I, you know, in fairness, I quite liked Ivanovic just because, you know, the the you know having a, a big hulking guy at right back is quite fun sometimes. But I don't see that this could be anywhere near the, the top of our priority list. Um, and based on the budget that we have, I, you know... I think it's probably agent talk to maybe get him a better deal somewhere else. There's talk of Manchester United as well, isn't there? So Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a different question. Do we need to buy a right-back this summer? Potentially, yes. Because Hector Bellerin did his cruise shirt, didn't he, in January? Yeah. So he's probably not going to be back until... September, October, and then you want to ease him into the season a bit, don't you? You can't just say, off you go again, Hector, because he's going to break down, um, because that would, be, yeah. that would be normal. So that leaves our right-back options. Given that Licksteiner we expect to go, Jenkinson we think is surely certain to go, that leaves Maitland-Niles, and I can't even really bring myself to say it, but possibly Mustafi. Andrew? Yeah, I'm here. I was just trying <laughs> trying not to die on the inside when you said that. <laughs> uh, Andrew, no, come back. No! I didn't mean it. <laughs> um, so I think we, we might well need one, especially if Mustafi goes, which I, we are sort of all holding out. I do agree it. that we probably need a right back, but what I would say is we don't necessarily need a... a 30 million, 30 million euro. euro right back. Giant who, right back. Yeah, giganto. You don't need a right back on stilts that cost that much money. So I, I wonder if we might, you know, um, maybe this is the opportunity or one of the opportunities for us to outsmart the market by mm. identifying a young player, perhaps at a club that isn't in the Premier League. It might be abroad. It might be in the Championship. It could be even lower down. Who could come in and... Um, Understudy, I guess, to Hector Bellerin. I suppose the complicating factor is, is that whoever you bring in is probably going to have to start the season. Yes. Because Bellerin won't be fit. So is it too much of a baptism of fire if you wanted to just sort of bring in a young right back? Maybe you could play him, you know, in the Europa League games and, and blood him that way. I don't know. So you, it's a you're it's saying a we need one. an experienced head, like a, a, a like like Licksteiner. Yeah, maybe we could get one of those guys on a free transfer. <laughs> that worked out well. Yeah, it really did. No, I look. It, it's it's another part of this summer's puzzle, isn't it? it? Really is. Well, Five and Hill on the Discord has asked: Is it time for your transfer predictions? I mean, is it time for our transfer predictions? Is it time for our transfer predictions? What exactly? do we need to predict? This is where I'm getting off. We, we normally predict what, what positions we'll buy, how much we'll spend, and how much we'll get for sales. Okay. Do you want to do it? Shall we do it? Yeah. 
This is planning, guys. This, this is, is planning, planning in action. Okay, I'm just I'm just going to write some stuff down. I mean, and then we write it down, and then you lose the bit of paper. Then I lose the paper, and nobody can remember. No, usually yeah. one of the listeners um, remembers what we've said. So where are we going to buy? I think. Okay, I'll go first on this. We're going to buy a central defender. We're okay. going to buy a left back. We're okay. going to buy a central midfielder. All right. We're going to buy an attacking midfielder of some kind. All right. And I think we're going to buy a forward. So okay. I think that's one, two, three. That's five players. And that's kind of. Yeah, I think we're going to have to buy a right back as well. <laughs> So okay. there's six. Six. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to say uh, a central defender, a central midfielder, a winger slash striker. Oh, you're going for the two in one here. Yeah. Get value so for money. one, two, three. Yeah. And then I'm going to say a versatile defender. So, like, someone who could maybe play both full-back positions. Who... Four. Yeah. Who? Well, like James Milner. James Milner. We're going to buy James Milner. Mm. I, I don't know, but I'm going to say... Four, four players? Actually, and then we're going to buy, like, a Gendouzi, like a sort of 17, 18-year-old that, that, that we, you know, don't expect to be part of the squad. But what but position? What position? Do you know... It doesn't matter. He's going to be the position of child, excellent child. <laughs> He's going to be attacking child, okay? Attacking excellent child. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I like. Put that into your football manager filters. <laughs> Bring me an excellent child. That could be misconstrued uh, very, very easily. Um, and I, now, now we have to predict what our total uh, spend will be, and then what our revenue will be. Oh, my God. We probably should have given this some thought. Um, our total spend is going to be, like, 60 million? Oh, that's what I was going to say. Okay. I, okay. All right, 60 well... 60 million? I'm going to say... I'm going to say 65. <laughs> is okay. that mental? Well, I mean, that could be the total spend, because we could, of course, bring money in for players yeah. if we sold a couple oh and then we make a list of the people we think we'll sell I think and then we have a total value yeah actually this is, this if, historically if we have happened. a list of people that I think we're going to sell we, we'll have a squad with about eight players in it by the time we're finished this to be honest <laughs> well this is the game this is too complicated this game right now I need more time to it's to, like Monopoly isn't it I need more time to ponder and we can see, you know, what might happen in terms of in terms of outgoings. Did you see the story? I know many people have asked us about this. Um, I can't remember if I have a question, but I, I will ask it. The story going around this morning about um, Mesut Ozil. Yeah, Peter Hust asked okay. that question. Right. Morning, gents. What's your take on the story about Ozil criticising Emery? A lip-reading story. It's brilliant. I love a good lip-reading story. Apparently, some uh, somebody has uh, deciphered the fact that when he was taken off in the 
uh, in the Europa League final, much to his displeasure, as I think we could all see, he really was not very happy about it. Mesut Ozil sat down on the bench and was, you know, we could see he was saying something to somebody, but apparently the story is that he was, he was saying to Emery, you're not a coach. You're not a coach in Turkish. Well, there you go. You are not a coach. What a um, what a great story! A lip reading story in Turkish as well. It's exciting. I don't know. I like how this much variety, it, you know. Yeah, uh, it's been through a few filters. That particular story, hasn't it? It's it's gone to Turkey. It's gone to the lip readers. They've done their work. It's made its way back to us. Mm. It's like uh, Turkish whispers. Turkish whispers. But Give it a couple of weeks and it'll be like Ozil said, Emery, I will <laughs> smite you at dawn for the way you've treated me today. <laughs> uh, that'll probably be next season. He'll start saying things like that on the bench, I would think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, who knew that Emery and Ozil didn't particularly get on? Who could ever have thought that might be the case? Yeah. Uh, it's certainly been a shock to me. I, yeah, I mean, look, who knows who's going to leave? Who knows if Mesut Ozil is going to leave? But um, I think we had. If a- I had to put a number on it, I think we'll recoup about 16 million Ooh, from sales. Yeah. I mean. Is that generous? I, I guess. Maybe. It depends who we sell, you know, because. Got to get, you've got to get something from Mohamed El Nenny these days. Yeah. But we do have a question here. It comes from. It comes from Shinji Ikari, who's at Rye2UK on Twitter. It says, Do you fear we could really lose Lacazette in the summer? And what would be the ramifications of that? There were stories last week. Again, the you know, we have to take everything. Um, with a bit of a pinch of salt. But a story last week in uh, Sport, the Catalan newspaper, to say that Barcelona are on the lookout for a number nine, and they have identified both Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Alexandre Lacazette as uh, potential candidates for that Mm. role. The fact that we don't have Champions League football makes um, those potential destinations a bit more... Uh, attractive, I would say, for our two uh, key strikers, neither of whom I would be inclined to sell. But then there were stories about Lacazette being in Barcelona and he was spotted having you know, lunch at a restaurant. Um, as someone said to me on Twitter, he could have just been going to Primavera Sound, which was on at the weekend, going for a gig. True. But, you know... It's a lovely a, place to visit, Barcelona. It is a lovely well, place it? to visit, but, you know, uh, you know, you can't help but be a little bit cynical in, in this um, day and age. But, yeah, so, I mean, there's a player who could bring us, I don't know, certainly at least what we paid for him. Oh, yeah, you'd like to think more than that. Um, but, I mean, you'd like to think he'd stay. That's what you'd really like to think. Yeah. But we definitely do feel a bit vulnerable now without Champions League football. Mm. And of the two, Lacazette certainly would be a more sensible recruit for Barcelona I think given uh, you know given his age uh, you know he would retain a little bit of value at least while Aubameyang's probably unlikely to do that Mm. for much longer I think stylistically as well Lacazette I can see him fitting in there which sort of troubles me Um, yeah look I mean look they they need a centre forward and there's a lot of names on that list but I, I want to see him stay Mm. I want to see him stay. Yeah. Even to the tune of 70 million quid, I think. But you could reinvest that 70 million. It's a very, very difficult one because you immediately signal 
a sort of not a lack of ambition. And you know, we we've talked about you know how. We talked about do, Liverpool in part one. Yeah, exactly. Generation. And, and in fairness, selling. Suarez was a player that they did not want to sell, but they sold him for, for big money. And, you know, they didn't... Um, I don't know what exactly they spent um, that money on when they sold him. Can you remember? I can't remember. Uh, I think they spent it on people like Firmino, didn't they? Yeah. Right. Okay. Maybe um, they did. Yeah. So look, look, we can't ignore the the desire or the need to regenerate by um, selling some of our players. It's just that it's very difficult to get your head around the idea of selling either one of Lacazette or Aubameyang because they're basically the best thing about this team right now, and it would be really, I think, demoralising for either one of uh, or the other of them to see their strike partner sent and. I think it would be really demoralising for the players who are actually staying and who have got a job to do next season if one of the best players is sold. Mm. Maybe, I mean, you, I would, maybe you offset it if you bring in you know good players in the transfer market, but as yet, you know, it's hard to take that leap of faith that we could do the right thing with the money if we got it, you know? We don't know that yet because we've no evidence whatsoever that this um, particular um, backroom setup is capable of, of doing that, you know? I think we all more or less accept that our transfers last summer were driven by Sven Mislintat. So mm. now it's, well, who's going to be making the decisions? So, I mean, w- one thing I do think is if Barcelona are interested in Lacazette, when you look at the Suarez deal and particularly the Coutinho deal, there is a bit of a track track record there of them paying over the odds. And I think, you know, 70 million or something like that feels like, yeah, that's sort of the fair market value potentially. But I think if we could squeeze them for more, then I think it does change the proposition a little bit. Like if you could somehow get them to go to 100 million, I think in that position we kind of have to sell because it becomes such an extraordinarily good deal. Mm. Um that you kind of have to take it. So I hope that if there if there is real interest there, I just hope we make it difficult for them and sort of force them to push the boat out as they have in the past because we need to give ourselves the, the strongest platform to, to rebuild if we are going to lose someone like that. Yes, yes. Um, okay, here's a... Let me just follow on from this. And it comes back to the, the question that we were talking about before. Uh, from Dwayne Lynch at Lynchy D, this is our predictions kind of question. He says, knowing everything you know about Arsenal, the ownership and the budget, the sheer volume of surgery that needs to be done, what is the minimum life-saving surgery that we need to do? And this is based on the assumption that, you know, Unai Emery is going to be the man in charge next season. What's the minimum? What's the minimum we need to do with this squad? To do what? To achieve what? To, to get into the top four? Yeah, let's let's go there. Um, the minimum is we need a new centre half definitely I think we need a new central midfielder and I think we need a winger I think that's the minimum uh, in terms of incomings I think we do need fullbacks but I think if Ainsley Maitland-Niles like progressed dramatically as a right back, we might be okay. We might get away with Kalasinac, yeah. but as the you know, I think without those, without a centre half, without a centre midfielder, without the option of a winger, I think 
we're going to struggle to improve. Is, is there anything we? I mean, I would, I would, I think I'd stick a left back on the the minimum that right, we have yeah. to do. I mean, there's definitely a case for that. Yeah. Is there anything that you would make sure we we do in terms of players departing? Like, what's the minimum we need to do there? Like, what's what's a must? Absolutely, no question about it. Departure this summer. For me, Selma Staffy is number one on that list. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I just think he's calamitous. And I also think that his relationship with the fans is has a certain toxicity to it at this point. And I think it would just be best to kind of, you know, have a bit of a reset there. Um, Mesut Ozil's not far behind for mm. me. But I think if you said to me, you know, you absolutely have to do it, then, uh, you know, what's, what well, the, is the yeah. minimum? The yeah, minimum do, is Mustafi goes. There doesn't have to be one, just one minimum. I, I think both Mustafi and Ozil, um, I think the, yeah, we, we've seen enough from Mustafi as a defender to know that we need an upgrade. And in order to get an upgrade, we're going to have to try and cash in on somebody. You know, he is, we're not going to get what we paid for him or anywhere close, I don't think, but we should still get a fee and that needs to be reinvested back into the defence. And I do think the Ozil thing has, has um, it will just continue to be a cloud over everything uh, as long as as long as he's here, you know. There, um, there is a financial thing as well, you know, potentially shifting him enables you to get a better class of centre-half, a better class of centre midfielder, a better mm. class of left-back uh, by redistributing that salary. Yeah, I... I uh, Mustafi and Erzul, it almost feels like uh, it's almost like a mood thing at this point. I mean, obviously there are sort of technical issues with both players and their fit into the team, but mm. it really feels like for the group, it would be good for them to go. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, the scary thing is like the list of signings I thought we would make, and the list of the bare minimum we need to make is not very different. Mm. There's a fucking hell of a lot of work to do. It's, really. it's so much work to do, because you could make the case that Arsenal need a goalkeeper, a centre-half, a right-back and a left-back, uh, a central midfielder yeah. uh, to replace Ramsey, a central midfielder potentially to replace Ozil, a winger, a forward to replace Danny Welbeck. You know... You could argue they need all those players mm. and it would be difficult to contest that. That's why I think maybe Maitland-Niles will continue as a right-back. Yeah. Because uh, I've seen questions from people about whether or not we could move him into central midfield, which is where uh, I think Arsene Wenger spoke about him playing. Uh, it's, it's a very confused situation with Maitland-Niles because he himself talked about being a winger how he wants to be, you know, um, a forward player. And that's where he spent a lot of his um, early career. And certainly when he went to Ipswich, I think that's where that's where he played. Um, but given what else we have to do, we need to prioritise the way we spend our money on the, on the positions that really, really matter. And I think those are, you know, in defence, uh, centre half and left back, in central midfield, um, because Ramsey's going, we need a Ramsey replacement. I think they will. I think they'll uh, 
with the goalkeeper, I think it'll be Martinez or Ilyev will make the step up or they'll get like a cheap guy on loan for a season if they need or they feel they need more experience. Yeah. I don't well, see... Rob a... Green, you know, is mm. going to be available. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, and, and look, there are players coming in uh, to the squad, this uh, young Brazilian kid, Martinelli. I'm not quite sure uh, how ready he's going to be, whether he's uh, coming in to be part of the first team squad. I'm not sure if that's the case. But Reese Nelson, of course, is is coming back. Um, so there are ways of making up the numbers. You know, sure. Joe jo Willock, for example, could take um, Mohamed Elneny's place in the squad. You know, mm-hmm. if Elneny's moved on. But yeah, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. A scary amount, I think, yeah. And and also, we're into June now. I mean, this is it. This mm. is the summer. Because of the the lateness of the, the two finals, yeah. you sort of forget. But we've made signings by now plenty of times in recent years. That's true, right. actually. That's true. I mean, look, I suppose we had to get the, the final out of, out of the way, if you like, before we knew what kind of a budget we were going to have, whether we were going to have Champions League money uh, mm-hmm. to attract Champions League players, um, and what we've got is Europa League money to attract some Europa League players. Um, I mean, I am... Presumably, that has quite a big impact. I mean, I mm. imagine there were lists drawn up for either eventuality, surely. And after Wednesday, you know, some of those names are right at the top of the list will have to be crossed out. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um Here's a question uh, from Don Weedle, who's at It's Tuesday RN right now. Um, he says, how much does Europa League football affect who we decide to loan out and keep? I can see a lot of youth getting minutes there. Willock and Enketia come to mind. Well, I think the model of Emil Smith-Rowe tells you a little bit about how we might do it next year, because he was with the squad for the first half of the season involved in the Europa Mm. Europa League group stage and then loaned out in January. And obviously, look, injury prevented him having much impact in the Bundesliga. But uh, I think we might see that uh, formula replicated next year Mm. with someone like Joe Willock. Um, Because, yeah, I think, you know, we probably did use the first-team players a little bit more than we needed to in the Europa League group stage. I understand that because I think Emery at that time was trying to implement certain things and you know get a grip on the group so it made sense to keep those senior players with the squad but next year I think we will see a bit more youth involved uh, and yeah then in January once it gets to the business end of that competition they can go out and play elsewhere mm. yeah I think that's probably it I think that's probably it but um, yeah yeah, this I mean, question, go oh, on. Go on. No, 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 no. It was probably just a nothing point about the Europa League and our approach, but I remember we spoke about it on the last podcast, I think, um, yeah. about what way we'd approach it. And I go I go very young in the group stages um, to, to blood. I mean, if we are going to re- refresh from within with youth players, we're going to bring some young players in, I, you know, we have to give them playing time, and that's the perfect way to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm. This question is sort of a philosophical question from Benjano Stex. Mm-hmm. And Benjano says, expanding on the idea from last week regarding selling out our principles for no reward, how would you guys feel if the club was bought by some mega-rich person or people who pumped in money a la City or Chelsea? If it brought us trophies, would we care? 
Or is it better to, as we do now, follow the sustainability model for when the arse inevitably falls out of the Premier League's funding, Mm. allowing us to stay relatively unharmed? Yeah, look, you know, it's that moral quandary. You know, know, as much as I dislike Kroenke, you know, I remember being uh, very, very uneasy about Usmanov. You know, and he came along at a time when we were all pointing fingers at Chelsea and, and singing songs about Chelsea buying success and all that kind of stuff. And Usmanov was, you know, from the same ilk as Abramovich. Um, so, you know, it is a really difficult one. You know, I think, uh, as we talked about earlier, Liverpool's owners have shown that you can build and you can compete. Um they have put some of their own money in, but they've also run the club much better than our club has been run in recent years. How would I feel if, like, a, a, a nation state with uh, loads and loads of money, but with a terrible record on human rights or all those sort of things came along? I think I'd feel pretty bad about it. I would. Yeah. I don't Even know what if I could... winning trophies? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You... Yeah, I wouldn't... It's not that I wouldn't enjoy winning trophies, but I do feel in some ways like they would be probably a bit tainted in my mind. You know? Yeah. As, as every, you know, Manchester City... What was the reason everybody wanted Manchester City to win the Premier League rather than Liverpool? was because you can write it off because it doesn't matter and it would be nice personally it would be nice if we could win and it mattered you know or without any caveats or without anybody being able to say well you only want it because of this that and the other you know you you even when we were going up against Manchester United in that fantastic period of rivalry between the two clubs there was a, a sense that United were somehow not fin- financially doped, but because of their wealth, what we did was even more special, right? Yeah, it was and, a bit of a mismatch economically, certainly. Yeah. You know, and over time we've come to realise that Manchester United had that funding because, well, they were smart. They were smarter than everybody else before everyone else, and they built a huge commercial behemoth which really um, drove success at that football club for a really long time. And it was their own money. They generated their own money. They weren't um, financed by sugar daddies or, or um, oligarchs or nation states or any of that sort of stuff. And there was a this sort of a, a purity in as much as um, anything can be pure at the top level of football or sport or whatever. But yeah, look, it would be, it would be a difficult thing to get your head around. Because you're then faced with a choice of supporting the club you've supported your entire life or on moral grounds, on a, on a matter of principle, because of your distaste for the owner or where the money comes from or, or all the various things that could be associated with that, of walking away and turning your back on it. And I don't think, as much as we all like to think we're good, honest, decent people who want to do the right thing as much as possible, that's a very difficult thing to do. You know, 
give up something that's been a part of your life for such a long time? That's really difficult. I know some people will be able to say, that's it, that there's the line for me, that is the line, and I can't go beyond it. But most people won't be able to do that. So you're, you're just going to have to compartmentalize it or, or become a mental gymnast uh, and get on with it. So, Yeah, I mean, it's not a situation that we face, but I would be fascinated to know... I think I believe you when you say, you know, I think it would feel tainted for me, but just observing the Chelsea fans I know and the Manchester City fans that I know, I think it's fair to say the majority of supporters would probably <clears throat> make their peace with it, mm. you know, in whatever way they needed to. Uh, it is incredible the sort of supplicating effect that success can have on a person's ethics. And uh, that's not to be accusatory, and I think I would be as vulnerable to that as everybody else. Um, it, it does. I don't think that Man City fans feel guilt about their success. No, they don't. I mean, they get really, really defensive about it. They, they're they're Yes, rabid. and that is telling. You know, I, I mean, I think... I think I could probably say, you know, if that were to happen to Arsenal, you know what? We've won the Premier League and I enjoy that, but that doesn't mean all of a sudden I support our our owners. Yeah. I think you can you can straddle the fence if you like. You know, you can acknowledge but it's sort of what you choose to believe. Like a Manchester City fan can say, you know, they can Swallow that soundbite. Did you hear their chairman saying, well, look, we haven't bought the world's most expensive defender. We haven't bought the most expensive midfielder in Britain. We haven't mm. bought the most expensive striker. Um, which is a very clever observation. But, yeah. of course, their sort of collective spending is absolutely enormous. But you could choose to believe that or you could choose to believe, you know, this is down to the genius of Pep Guardiola or the, or the yeah. brilliance of Raheem Sterling rather than a kind of financial power. Um I don't know. It's a really, really complex one because, you know, some an owner like that would bring a lot of what we talk about wanting for Arsenal in terms of spending, in terms of sporting ambition, in terms of sort of trying to make us a, a global force, a huge club, you know, recognised across the world. Mm. We all talk about wanting those things, but at what price do we want them? Mm. You know, it's... it's it is a very, 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 very complex one. Because there is that argument of, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. And that might be the world that we live in now. Uh, mm. It might be. I'm not sure I like it. Yeah. Um, I, I had a question here and I can't find it. So I'm going to ask you this one. We'll fire sure. through a few quite quickly. Actually, before I do... Um, where is this one uh, on the Facebook? I opened it up. Oh, my goodness. I had it right here from Jack Wilde, who said, there's no point you say every podcast you forget to check the Facebook questions. So there, Jack. <laughs> Here's one from me. Now that Spurs have typically Spurs things up, have you cancelled your emigration to living in a hole in the outback, never to return to European shores again? Yes, Jack Wilde, I have. 
So I hope you're happy now. I've answered your question on Facebook. Here's the other question I was going to ask you while I uh, look for the other question that I was going to ask you. It comes from Tony Jeffries, who's at Boz Jeffries. What do you think of Chambers coming back from a good loan and forming a midfield holding pair with Torreira? Listen, I I I want Chambers back in the squad, actually. I've thought about it long and hard and considered if we should sell him. But I think let's get him back. He can play centre-half. He can play centre midfield. He's homegrown qualifying as an English player. Mm. He's under contract probably forever, given the amount of contracts we've given him recently. So let's give him a year as part of the squad, give him some game time. There's a potential right back. Yeah, yeah, that has occurred to me as well, just as we were chatting about it then. I mean, you know, he wasn't brilliant in that position, but he's a couple of years older now, so who knows. But I think as a central midfielder, I think that might be all centre half, possibly. Mm. What's most interesting, I, I definitely was impressed with him at central midfield in Fulham. Every time I saw him, I thought, "Oh, he's faring much better than I would have imagined in that position." So let's see. I think let's see what we can do with him. And if it doesn't work out, he's still under contract for a few years. We can sell him at that point. Mm. But I think, uh, given the amount of work we need to do on the squad, he could be someone who might save us a bit of trouble. What about you? Um, I, I think keep him in the squad, but I would I would worry about him in central midfield. To be honest, I think if we if we want to play a more athletic game in that area of the pitch, I don't know that that's really um, his oeuvre, if you like. Mm. I I think probably as a central defender, he has something to offer this squad. A not Mustafi. B, sure. I think when he came into the team last year towards the second half or towards the end of the season, I think he did quite well. I mean, he did well in the the semi-final um, in Madrid when we lost, but he did play quite well in that game. He did, yeah. You know, so a I, decent end to the last season. I, 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 thought, I, yeah. I think there's enough potential still in him as a defender for us to keep him in the squad because, of course, he, he helps with the homegrown rules as well and would add some depth. And he might allow, let's say, Mavropanos to go out on loan and then we can see what kind of a player we've got there because at the moment we just have no idea. There's a, a sort of a hope in the air that Mavropanos can be something brilliant, but we've only ever seen him play four or five games for us and we just you know at this point cannot make any real assessment on on what sort of a player he is or what he might become and and he needs to play so maybe Chambers um, could help there so yeah I'd keep him in the squad for next season My my only sort of caveat with Chambers is that you know when I look at the squad I feel like we lack a certain physical intensity and he doesn't strike me as someone who closes that gap necessarily No I agree but um he We're, still could have his use, I think. Yeah, you know, in, in a summer where we have a lot of stuff to do, keeping Chambers could provide more resources for other more pressing matters, if that makes mm. sense. Here's the mm. question I was going to ask you. This comes from good underscore evening, who's at G evening uh, on Twitter. Good evening. Uh, he says... A lot of people say we need to spend money and blame Cronky. Considering we spent 
18 million on Perez, 35 million on Mustafi. He has 40 million for Xhaka, but I think Xhaka was 35 million as well. Uh, 30 million on Mickey. We didn't spend 30 million on Mickey, but we swapped a player we could have sold for 50 million the previous um, summer. Uh, 4 million on Takuma Asano. Surely our scouts have a lot to answer for. And, you know, to add to that, of course, um, we did buy. Aubameyang for 55 million and we did spend the guts of 50 million pounds on Alexandra Lacazette so is you know uh, as much as our distaste for the owner and his apparent um, disinterest or uninterest or lack of interest I should say in in Arsenal you know we all have our issues with that but is the bigger issue how we have bought players and also how we've sold them or not sold them so it's more to do with you know the people who are making the football decisions at the club rather than Kroenke um, being a kind of uh, obstruction to us spending money or, or, or anything else yeah I think that's a point really well, well made and also you know as frustrated as we might be by Kroenke it's not necessarily something it's really within our power to change you know we have to focus on what we can affect uh, as a club uh, and what we can do and we haven't really done our business sufficiently well and I think the concern is the the Mislintat signings within the last couple of years are the ones that are sort of relatively impressive you know think of Terreric and Doozy Aubameyang to an extent Leno, Leno. Um, those are the right kind of acquisition uh, but beyond that big questions and I think that maybe is why there's a bit of concern about the fact that we look, might be appointing someone internally Francis Kagigao as our as our head of recruitment mm. because ultimately there's someone who's been part of that regime yeah not not right at the top of it but part of it uh, over the last few years and definitely you know we haven't we haven't bought particularly well you know as a rule over the last few years I mean there was a great piece that Tim from 7am kickoff wrote on his blog about Unai Emery's first season in charge. I don't know if you've had a chance to have a look at I, it. Yet. I opened it yesterday, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, what, what, one of the things that he talks about in that is uh, the transfer spend last summer and how that's, you know, although we recouped a lot of money in January and, 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 and the previous summer as well with Oxley Chamberlain, we have spent quite a lot of money and we haven't necessarily seen a dramatic upturn in our form as a consequence. Mm. And I do think we could be more efficient, undoubtedly, in the way that we in the way that we spend money. So I don't know, again we come back to my old scenario of pinning on all my hopes on Edu. But <laughs> it really does feel like that's gonna be a massive determining factor uh, for us, you know, how successfully and how quickly he can kind of get a grip on things. Yeah. Yeah. I look we 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 clearly need to buy better. I mean I think you told the story, didn't you, on the podcast that mm. uh, when it came to Lucas Perez, there was opposition, would it be fair to say? Um, oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, definitely. W- within the club, there were people yeah. telling Arsene Wenger, don't do it. This guy is not the guy that you want him to be, basically. Mm. But we went and Yeah, did and it. I'm not even sure who ultimately, you know, pushed the button to, to sign Lucas Perez, but I do know that there were scouts in Spain, Francis Cagigao included, who thought, who who essentially recommended to the club, this is a, a mid-table level player. This is not a Champions League calibre player. Mm. 
uh, and it ultimately has turned out that way. Yeah. You know, we also really, really need to to sell better. Um, and, and to be fair, that is something that Sanyehi has spoken about uh, in the last little while, about how you can't let a Ramsey situation develop again and you can't let uh, a Welbeck situation develop again and you can't do, you know, what we did with uh, Alexis Sanchez again. You know, I remember at the time thinking, you know what, I'm actually okay with us keeping him going into the final year of his contract because, A, I didn't necessarily trust us to go and spend the money in the right way um, if we did sell him. But we completely fudged it, of course. We fucked it completely up. If we'd just been straight up and said, no, we're not going to sell you, um, that's it. Instead, we, we we bent at the last minute, didn't we? And we had that ridiculous bid for uh, Thomas Lamar. And then mm-hmm. uh, there was the talk of uh, Manchester City. He's, he'd been up there, apparently, Alexis, and then it fell through at the last minute. You know, it was such a disaster. It was just such a badly managed situation. You know, as is the Ramsey situation, as is the Welbeck situation, even the Oxlade-Chamberlain situation, who we got reasonable money for, you know, why why was it done when it was done? Why was it not done sooner than that? You know, we had that shambolic display at Anfield, if you remember, and he sort of ambled about the pitch, you know, playing against the club. He knew he was going to be joining a couple of days later. A bad situation. You can criticise his performance all you want, and I think that's entirely justified. But it's a really shit situation to put a player in, you know? Um, Mm. So in terms of how we manage our departures and how we manage our sales, I think that's got to be an area... Um, that we we do better with. Um, so there. Um, what, what about this question from okay. Penultimo? Uh, not one I anticipated. At Penultimo11 on Twitter, should we bring Akpom home? He's had a very good fine season in Greece, and regardless of level, we could certainly use his commitment and work rate. No. I mean, we sold him, didn't we? It's not a case of, like, we bring him back on loan and, and give him a place in the squad. We sold him, and he's gone to Greece and done really, really well, and it's uh, it's a fantastic story, you know, to have scored the winner in a cup final and to... Did they do the double, I think? They did do um, the double, yeah. Uh, it's Pauk he's playing for, right? So, it is Pauk. Yeah, so, you know, what a great story for him. But, you know... Why do we feel this need all the time when any player leaves and does something vaguely good to go bring him home? We've missed out here. <laughs> clearly, clearly the reason Chuba Akpom didn't play, you know, hardly at all for Arsenal, it was just a mistake. It was a mistake. We just didn't see what he had. And now we yeah. should bring him back and he will bloom again. Maybe it's the fact that he's playing in a league which suits his level a bit better, you know? And yeah. I don't think we need to. I don't think we need to do that. I concur. I mean, he'll be 24 in October. I, I'm delighted for him that it's panning out well for him. I thought he was a little bit unlucky. Arsenal had some big injuries and uh, came close to scoring for the first team on a number of occasions. But it was the same when Benikafobi first went out, you know, and was at Wolves and scoring lots of goals and at MK Dons. And mm. people said, "Let's bring him back." And you know, I'm, I can't. I'm not even. I can't even remember quite where Bennett Phoebe is right now. I know that he got loaned out from Bournemouth. Uh, yeah, he went to Stoke. Poor guy. Oh my god. So, you know, it just shows you uh, that's you know, it, it's it's sometimes players are, are flourishing because they're playing at the right level. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mean we've made the wrong decision. Exactly. There was a lot of that when Phoebe was scoring goals for Wolves, and it was like, well, he's you know, look at him, he's scoring all the time, but yeah, he's scoring in 
League One or the championship or something, you know? So, um, yeah, you can um, rue the good ones you let go, but I think some of the ones who, who have gone and done well elsewhere are doing so because they're they're down a level or two. We had a load of questions today about Jurgen Klopp, whether, you know, um, we should have hired him back in the day. Uh, mm-hmm. when we had the opportunity um, and I don't know that it would do us any uh, good to, <laughs> to discuss to the potential of that yeah because it's all speculation nevertheless I'm going to ask you a question um, which uh, requires you to speculate completely and utterly it comes from Liam Kent uh, who's at Liam K Football who says do 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 you think we'd have had more of an identity now if we'd gone with Arteta do you think Emery's habit of changing his selections, formations is part of this? We criticised Wenger for not doing that, so is there perhaps a, a happy medium? I think we probably would have a clearer identity. I'm not sure Emery's a type of coach who's ever going to really have a very coherent, very clear style. And I think we're guessing and we're projecting with Arteta, but someone who's been kind of schooled by Guardiola to an extent schooled by Wenger. And let's not forget his incredibly enthralling spell under David Moyes. Um, I think, yeah, there probably would be a more sort of obvious playing style from him at this point. I'm not saying we'd necessarily be more successful with it, but I just get the impression that he might be more of a kind of mm. ideology manager than the one we have right now. Do you think so? I think he probably would have, yeah. I think he would have been... Um, you know, to to be fair to Emery, he kind of was when he arrived. Mm. I, I, I think we all bought into the idea or were certainly encouraged by the idea of a coach who was tactically flexible because, you know, the, the criticism of Wenger was he does it his way. Um, he's completely dogmatic about it and he doesn't change enough on a game-to-game basis. Mm. And then when he did start to muddle around with things like the back three and changing, you know, formations and and what have you, we ended up with our basically our worst season ever under him. So, you know, he was trying to be something that he's not. And I think he got caught between two stools. And I think in some ways that hastened uh, his his departure. You know, that was a, 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 part, uh, a part of it. I mean, look, it had run its course and everything else, but, you know... I, I really feel, and I know we spoke about this on the on the podcast last week about if we are going to go with a, a relatively young r- refresh of the squad, I do think you need some kind of identity as a football club in terms of how you play the game. I mean that was that was always true of of um, uh, Arsenal under Wenger, wasn't it? That the youth teams... The youth teams were played in the same system. Played same in the approach. same system. So, you know, they were brought up so that when they got to the first team, if they got to the first team, they understood. But it was this idea that a footballing identity runs through the very heart of the club. This is how we want to play. This is what we want to do. You can still be tactically flexible and you can be perhaps a bit more... Um, open to other ideas than than Wenger was, or you could concentrate on certain areas maybe a bit more than he did, but that identity was right there. We don't have that right now. I'm not sure that we're going to have it under Emery because of his comments about how he wants us to be a chameleon team, mm-hmm. which is one that uh, 
you know, can change from time to time. But, you know, why do chameleons change their colours? Because they're scared. Isn't that what they do it for? Mm, to, um, lovely. That's beautiful. That's a lovely thing to say. I agree. You know? so yeah. I, it's, a, I, it's a reactive thing. Yeah. yeah. But I think probably where we need to go next season, I you know, I don't have any real... Um, Faith is not the wrong word, but I don't really believe that that Emery, you know, next season is going to is going to all of a sudden transform into the kind of coach who who plays in one way or at least builds a platform on one way of playing. No, you know, that doesn't feel realistic, does it? No, and and to an extent, you know, he he seemed to compromise himself a bit during this season, though. No. When we started, what were the things that he talked about? Playing out from the back, high mm-hmm. pressing, intensity, work right off the ball. And then when we get the ball, you know, let's get forward and let's use our attacking talents. Over the course of the season, whether by accident or design or whether because he had to to uh, be a bit more pragmatic in the way that he approached um fixtures or approached you know his team selections with the squad as he got to understand it better we kind of stopped playing out from the back in the same way the pressing was here or there sometimes you know so yeah. the, the the things that he started last season with that we all kind of went ooh, that's different and that could be good if we keep doing that just sort of fell away so mm. i feel like if if that's if that's um, capable of happening over the course of one season, I don't see how, you know, a couple of weeks off in the summer and a few new players in and a few players out is going to radically change that. No, nor do I. I I suppose the only cause for sort of optimism, if you can call it that, is that I think I would concur with your point of view that Emery sort of... (sighs) sort of sacrificed what appeared to be his principles at, at kind of the midpoint mm. in the season and made a lot of sort of short-term moves, including the reintegration of Ozil and Ramsey. And actually, that I mean, I'm not disputing that brought about a decent period of form and some of our better football. Um, but I think it, it weirdly kind of set his own plans back somewhat. And I, I can only hope that this summer provides a bit of a reset mm. for him. I, I feel like I'm using that word a lot on this podcast at the moment, reset. But yeah. it almost feels like that's what's required for the club. Yeah. Look, we'll have to wait and see. But I think, I think, again, coming back to uh, your lord and saviour, Edu. Sure. Who will make everything better. In Edu, we trust. Um, Sanyehi basically said that it's Edu's job to create or to identify the, the, the club's identity, right? That's mm-hmm. his job, is to drive the identity of the football. So when Edu comes in, he's obviously going to look at the coach, he's going to look at the players, and he's going to decide, we assume, what kind of footballing identity Arsenal are going to have. You would like to think that as somebody who uh, played under Wenger, and enjoyed success under Wenger and saw what it did for for Arsenal, that his outlook is to, I I don't mean replicate that, but to be a much more front-footed team than we appear to be at this moment in time. 
you know, a team that will go and attack and will try and play nice football, um, built on a, a good defensive platform as we had during the Invincible season, you know, um, it might have been a back four put together um, that nobody really expected, but it worked and it allowed that team to play the kind of football that they do. So I'm, I'm slightly hopeful that when Edu comes, he will start to impose that identity. And if he feels like Unai Emery is not the manager to implement it, then we'll go with a different one. And I think that's kind of where we are. And, and maybe, you know, as you say, a two-year stabilization under Unai Emery might just leave us in the, in the position where that man is available or it's the right time for that man to come in. Yeah. And I think, you know, I agree with you about us hopefully being more front-footed next season because I don't think any of us believe whoever we sign, we can sufficiently improve our defence to enable us to become some sort of watertight, mm. you know, counter-attacking unit. We are a team who are probably still going to need to be more progressive, more aggressive, yeah. play higher up the pitch, you know, in order to, to have any chance of success. So. Mm. Um, it's mad, isn't it? You know, there's so many different ways this summer could go. And I, I almost think that the fact that our identity as a team is quite fluid, it almost makes it impossible to predict. You know, we don't even know what kind of shape or sh- shapes will be lining up with yeah. next season, let alone the personnel that will fill in the gaps. Yeah, I mean, you'd like to think they know at this point what they want to do. Do we want to build a team around a back four? Um, mm. In which case, you know, the, the, the business we do in the transfer market will be will be absolutely crucial in that regard. But, you know, as, as you say, it's June already. You know, it's going to be, what, four or five weeks before Arsenal head off to the US on pre-season tour, um, where you would imagine some of the new players are going to be and some of the players um, who are with us right now won't be anymore. Mm. So, you know, I think a lot is going to happen quite quickly. Um, well, it has to. It has to. So. It has to start happening now. So, um, so there. Look, we're uh, nearly an hour into this part two, so I'm going to call it um, call it quits here. Apart from this one final question, which I think is the most um, pressing issue of the day, uh, it comes from uh, Chris Taroni, who, of course, was the uh, the host of the Arse America podcast. Um, no longer uh, podcasting, but there you go. He says, "How many pairs of sunglasses should a person own? One." More than two? What's your answer? Well, I saw... Because you had a discussion with him about this. He's lost his one pair of sunglasses, right? Yeah. And you said, I can't believe you've only got one. Or something yeah. along those lines. Yes, I can't believe So how many one. do you feel is appropriate? I feel you need at least two pairs. At least really? two. Yeah. I think I've only got one. Well, but I wear normal glasses a lot of the time. Oh, that's true. So, I mean, really, what I need is like clip ons, you know, <laughs> the little clip on ones. Um, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. But I've only got one pair. Uh, I actually haven't even recovered. It's, I've not had sufficient cause to get them out of wherever they're kept this year. Yeah, but I you don't need them. sunglasses just for sunny days. When do you need them then? Whenever when you're hiding as a celebrity, yeah. But whenever you're, whenever it's too bright or too glary, not necessarily sunny. If you've got, um, you know, a bit of a headache, sunglasses are good for that. Need a, mm. you need a, you need a pair in the car, don't you? Just in case you get blinded by the sun as you're driving along, you need a pair in True. the car. Could happen. Um, 
And then, of course, you need more than one pair because most of the time I can't find them. So you need to find the other pair. Where's my fucking sunglasses? Well, where are my fucking I don't even know where my glasses? Sunglasses are. That's the way. I yeah. mean, I can't, like, my reading glasses that I need these days for reading, they drive me fucking mental. Mental. Because I can't find them. Because you don't know them. where they are. Yeah. Where are my fucking glasses? You oh, could get on one of those head. sort of. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> I'm wearing them often. But you could get one of those sort of uh, strings. You know, like older people often have their glasses like on a string around their neck. Mm. Do you think you could rock that look? No. No. <laughs> I don't. Okay. I don't. I'm You're not, not sure, I, that bracket, not sure I appreciate the implication there, James, but uh, there you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll let it slide uh, for I'm now. I'm just trying so. to help you out. I just don't want no, you to I, you know, I appreciate keep your glasses. That. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, All worries. Right. no worries. Okay, well, look, we will have an Arsecast uh, on Friday of some description, or at least I'll do my very best to get a podcast together. Who knows? We might make lots of signings between now and then. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but either way, James and I will be back on Monday next week uh, for another Arsecast Extra. So until then, I'm just going to insert the uh, recording of James saying bye-bye. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.